welcome to Charity Chats. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. We're now in week five or week seven, depending on where you are, of the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're safe and well and your families and friends are too. Obviously, a lot of people are really struggling at the moment with health issues or um, isolation issues. So uh, we're doing our weekly episodes now, trying our best to do what we can to help charities who are struggling. And we know that a lot of charities, a lot of you uh, people out there who work for charities are struggling. You may have been furloughed, your charity may be struggling because there's an increase in demand for its service or perhaps because or as well as uh, a a real struggle with fundraising because a lot of the areas of fundraising have been um, put on pause in terms of face-to-face fundraising and things like that. So what we've got today is a double episode for you, two great guests that we've spoken to before. Uh, It's Nick Byrne from GivePanel and uh, Giles Pegram, CBE, who are going to help us answer some of the questions around what can charities be doing now to engage with their supporters as best they can to uh, put their charities in the best possible situation it can be now and for the future. So uh, we're really delighted to have both Nick and Giles uh, on the show again. Um, They've already contributed and and, uh, continuing to do so. So uh, yeah, this is a really good episode. I hope you all enjoy it and I hope that it helps you in some way. So without further ado, here, to start us off, is Nick Burr. I'm delighted to be here with Nick Byrne, founder and CEO of GivePanel, the power tool for Facebook fundraising. And Nick, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to call you friend of the show because this is the second outing you've had with Charity Chat. And uh, after your, your previous episode, uh, which was episode 72 for our listeners, Facebook fundraising, that was, that was really fascinating. Thank you for joining us again, Nick. Really appreciate it. No worries. I love that. I like, uh, I like, what, like what you're doing. love to be a friend of, of the show. So that's, that's fun. That's good. I like that. Fantastic. So we find ourselves in uh, it's, it's the time of recording. It's the 8th of April. And obviously, coronavirus is um, you know, continuing to play havoc with the people generally, but the charity sector as well. Uh, there's been a little bit of talk about a bailout package by the UK government, but as yet, no details on what that would mean. How, how are you finding it with your business and uh, personally with the coronavirus pandemic? How are you finding things? Yeah, well, it's um, it's been a crazy time. You know, I think a lot of organizations are... Um, dealing with kind of having to work from home and the distributed workforce, we're really fortunate in that we're already a distributed company. So we, um, I have a small office near my house so that my kids don't bug me all day. But, uh, other than that, like we have, uh, we deal with, we have, um, a team like in Singapore and Canada and Edinburgh. So we, we're, we're distributed a- a- anyway. So we found it, you know, our culture is already kind of distributed and, um, we haven't found that to be a massive change, but what we have found is that obviously a lot of nonprofits are now trying to transition to the kind of how to do things more virtually and online and, and we're in that space, right? So we've been incredibly busy trying to support our, support our, our clients on that. And, and what about, is there anything in terms of, uh, with, with my colleagues and the place that I work, we're, we're aware of mental health and I know, you know, there's some restrictions on where people are going out and things like that. So we're, we're talking about things like doing a, a, 
a pub quiz and things like that. Do you guys do that kind of thing? Are you, are you talking about similar kind of things? Yeah, we don't. Um, we, uh, you know, we've, I, I've given the team some advice. I've been long-term kind of consultant working by myself. So I've had periods in certainly in my working career where I felt isolated and um, my mental state has dipped for sure. Um, I've learned strategies to cope with that. Um, like, you know, going out, making sure you take breaks, going outside for a walk, get the vitamin D, eat right, um, you know, and that kind of thing that I've shared with the team. And, and to be honest, just doing a non-work thing for a while, you know, going and, you know, whatever it might be, just doing something that you enjoy, um, you know. And so I've, I've shared that with the team, but we haven't kind of done anything with the team like like virtual pub quizzes or anything. But the other day we, um, we, I run a Facebook group for those, uh, for about 2,500 organizations that are, um, that have the giving tools that are interested in Facebook fundraising. And we did just did a kind of impromptu zoom hangout with, um, about 50 people jumped on and just to talk about the state of Facebook fundraising, that was really fun. And I didn't prepare much content and everyone was just chat. I didn't have to do anything. Everyone was talking and learning from each other, all these nonprofits learning from each other and charities learning from each other. So we were, that was really fun. And I think we'll do that again for sure. Brilliant. It certainly seems to be a time where uh, there's, there's more online activity. And I don't know, I've been in more face-to-face -face meetings, I think, over the last few weeks than I ever have before uh, with the benefit of Zoom and WhatsApp and all that kind of stuff. Are you, are you seeing, you talked about this uh, Zoom chat that you had with, um, yeah, with the Facebook fundraising group and everything. Um, are you um, seeing that coronavirus is affecting uh, fundraisers in a different way? And, and are they using um, kind of online platforms more now, given the coronavirus crisis? Yeah, I mean, we, we try to support um, people like charities with an ebook that we just launched about this, all about like a new virtual events model that's really, really working. Um, because the advantage of having GivePanel is we have over 150 nonprofits on there. So we can see all of the data coming through. We can see who's raising more, who's not raising more. And so I can share some of the trends if you're, if, if, if that's interesting to the that'd listeners. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So, so one thing is what we did see in, um, in February was a dip in kind of the birthday fundraisers that come through Facebook. Um, uh, but that's kind of slight, slightly come back now as people are doing birthday fundraisers for organizations that they know they're in trouble. Right. or for kind of coronavirus like organizations that are supporting um you know food banks are supporting people at the moment but also humanitarian organizations i mean this could end up being one of the biggest humanitarian crises of our time right if yeah. you know um uh, because the healthcare systems in in some poor places are not not as good as ours right mm -hmm. um so so we've seen a definitely i i think now after a bit of a lull when there was that few weeks where everyone was like, ah, what's happening? There was kind of panic and transitioning to this lockout period. Now that that's calmed down a bit, I think what we've seen is, a, a, generally speaking, a bit of an uptick. Um, and uh, the kinds of thing that we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of people add donate buttons to people's posts. So we have a, a large mental health. Well, they're not actually a large organization, but they're large on Facebook. Um, we have people just, uh, you talked about mental health bef before, but people just nominating people around like just mental health messaging on Facebook and adding this organization's donate button. And so suddenly they had their biggest day ever on Facebook. Um, and they've had some pretty big days previously, right. In terms of income. Yeah. And, uh, we were like, okay, this is a mystery. And we looked into the data and we found that a lot of people were adding the donate button to a post and just tagging mental health, like hashtagging and that kind of thing. So okay. 
if you, you know, there's, if you can be part of those kind of trends, then definitely that's, that's helpful. Um, but, uh, but the, 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 yeah, I mean, the big thing that I'd like to talk about and that I think is most helpful is what do you do now that all of your kind of community events have to be shelved for, for, you know, postponed or canceled for the next six, 12 months. Um, and this is where this virtual events model that is, that I see is working, working really well. So what, are the, what is a virtual event? We've talked a little bit about it before, but, but could you talk a little bit about what a virtual event is and what it looks like and what charities are doing with them? I think that's a really good question straight away. So a virtual event is like this completely amorphous term that means so many things. It, I think all it means really is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's something that... Um, it's something that doesn't happen in the physical, in the, in, in the real world in connect, terms of connecting people. Sure. So, you know, you might have had a gala or a, or a dinner and, you know, you try and do that virtually. You might have had a, a quiz and you're doing that virtually. You might have had, um, you know, a run and now you're doing that virtually. And people say, well, how do you do a run virtually? Well, people are still running, right? It's just that they're not doing it at your event. They're doing it in their own time. There's a story um, about this guy who ran the London Marathon in his garden. I think he ran around his garden about 800 times right. or something, right? So, <laughs> yeah, because we've all got fitness trackers now and like we, can, yeah. we know how much we can run and things. So, but I don't like, I'm trying to use the term now Facebook challenges rather than virtual events because that is what we're seeing working. So if you take all of the types of virtual events, mm -hmm. I think some of them are terrible ideas and are not raising any money for folks. So I think what's coming down the line is everyone's talking about virtual cha challenges, uh, sorry, virtual events right now. And in 2021, you're going to have a huge amount of disillusionment about virtual events. Virtual events don't work. And that's because a lot of people are uh, executing, a lot of charities, unfortunately, are executing the wrong strategy. They've either got the wrong type of virtual event or they're using the wrong platform. So do, do you know, can, can you tell the audience what, what is likely to work better or does it depend on the charity or how they're delivering it? So what, what works is, is um, a couple of things. So one is, um, so these Facebook challenges is what works the best, right? So why do Facebook fitness and, and mainly fitness challenges are working the best? Okay. See, the problem about transitioning a, um, a pub quiz to, to Zoom is, it's a different thing altogether, right? It's like, you know, what you get out of a pub quiz is not really possible to reenact on Zoom, right? Whereas if someone wants to get fit by running a marathon, guess what? They can do that without actually running a marathon at a marathon event. Does that make sense? And so what you want to do is, is you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You want to, like, like what's working with, with these fitness challenges is what has always worked, um, which is, you know, doing stuff that people already want to do. Mm -hmm. People already want to do press ups or sit ups or run, run or, you know, squats. And they're already doing that. In fact, most of the time I see this challenge happen on challenges happen on Facebook without a connection to charity, which is so annoying because that it means that person has not been reached by an organization in, in order to do it. Right. Um, so yeah, so, so it's, it's normally things that they already want to do and no one is thinking, oh, I know what I want to do. Go on Zoom and do a pub quiz or go on Zoom and eat my dinner. No one really wants to do that. And so 
you're taking something that worked offline and, and making it try and make it work online. And I don't think that's the right strategy. Look, I'm not saying that like pub, uh, a virtual quiz will not raise money. What I'm saying is, is it's, there are much better ideas that work, that ra- ra- there are much easier and raise much more money. So why wouldn't you do those? And so I'm not saying like, so if you have a ladder, it's like those ideas are like the, I mean, I know a gala that raised a hundred thousand dollars on, on Facebook. Right. Yeah. So, but I also know um, that that was quite a large organization. I know smaller charities that have done fitness challenges that have done $500,000 on Facebook for their fitness challenge. So it's like, it's not, I think it's coming from the fact that we were going to do a quiz or we were going to do a gala. And so we should try a virtual one. Yeah. Not, it's not coming from the right place, which is what do people actually want to do and what do they want to do online in a Facebook experience? And so that's the key is making sure that you understand that Facebook is the right platform to use, not the, some of these other platforms. And is it partly because if, if so I could be wrong by saying this, but, um, if, if Facebook is this kind of um, virtual community, if it's, if it's uh, would an analogy be a you know, garden party? We're all in a garden party together and uh, somebody's talking about having or doing a marathon, then people are more likely to give a bit of money than somebody saying, I'm probably going to do a pub quiz. Um, just using that example again. Yeah, so no one, no one fundraises for pub quiz, but you might pay an entry fee. Sure, sure. I mean, um, the guy that ran, ran around his garden doing the London Marathon, I heard that and I thought, I'd like to be part of that. I'd like to be part of that, you know, give him a couple of quid. And I don't know the guy. Exactly. And so the, the great thing about Facebook, and, and, and this is what people forget, is that um, it's where they're already, where as a fundraiser, if you start a fundraising page on Facebook, you're already connected to your friends and family. And it's your friends and family who are going to give you the money mainly like you saw that other one that went a bit viral and Facebook has those viral effects too. So that's the key thing is if you, if you drive your fundraisers to set up a a fundraising page on a complete like separate Island in, in the middle of nowhere, um, that's, they're not already connected to their friends and family on there and their friends and family don't really want to have to go and donate and have a username and password and whatever to on a separate site. Right. So that's why Facebook fundraising is working so well now. Um, and it's also free, right? Free transactions and free platform costs. So it's a, it's a bit of a no brainer really. So at at the moment, there seems to be, um, a lot, a lot of people who are struggling financially because they've lost their jobs or they're not being paid. They're independent, um, business owners, for example, and then on the other side, you might have people who are still getting paid because they're, they're still working or they've been furloughed, so they've got 80%, but then uh, they're saving money on commuting or on um, lunches or going out or, you know, all these kind of things. So do you think, will that make an impact on how people are giving through Facebook? No, I don't think at all. I don't think, it will. I don't think it's quite an issue at all, no. No, I mean, no, I don't think, it, I don't think people overthink it. I don't think it makes one bit of... Of difference that that point and is that because people are, are giving to their friends and family largely or because right yeah you're not like we're not giving it. right I mean if we're talking about the UK for example we are like we're still on the whole a very you know compared to the rest of the world a very rich country a five or a tenner for your friend doing a, a fitness challenge that you you know that you that you you know that you want to support is not 
for most people, not even going to be a, a thing. And, and, you know, you don't have, these fundraisers don't have to raise a lot, even if only five or six people of their friends and family give, it's still, you know, a hundred, hundred pounds. Right. Sure. And, and so, uh, it's not like what you, you know, some fundraisers raise a lot of, a lot of money, but you don't have like, it's still okay to raise five, a uh, hundred pounds. Right. That's still, that's more than a, than get than paying to go to a pub quiz, 10 pounds or something. Right. So when this pandemic's over, which we hope will be fairly soon, um, what will those charities who have made it through look like, do you think? Will they look different to how they did a few months ago? Possibly. I think like, so some of the changes that are happening in the world that were already happening have been accelerated. So one thing is like the working from home thing. So like there are a lot of organizations that are like not, didn't have a very good work from home strategy that now will have a great work from home strategy sure. and realize that people can be productive, flexible. So I think we'll have a more flexible, you know, work from home mentality as a sector, which will be good. Um, I think a lot of a lot of um, a lot of organisations have have probably rightly, you know, let go a lot of their staff so that their staff can get the government, you know, get the government benefits basically. Um, and so maybe we'll see some, you know, some increased efficiency as well. They might not rehire everyone back. That might take some time. So you'll see maybe smaller organizations. I'm not a big like pessimist that like all these charities are suddenly going to kind of, um, you know, go out of business if that makes sense. And then with the furloughing of staff that, that kind of makes sense. So I think more, hopefully more agile, um, definitely more open to like what can be done online. Uh, maybe some of the organizations that didn't sign up for Facebook fundraising should be kicking themselves right now. You know, like they were slow to it. Their chief executive didn't want to give their date of birth to Facebook. So they never could. I mean, we, we see so many silly reasons why charities haven't signed up for Facebook tools. It's not because the staff don't want to, but a, a lot of the time the trustees and, and, and levels just don't get it. And, and I feel so sorry for, for fundraising staff when that happens. Um, and now you've missed out on this great opportunity. Is it too late for them now, do you think? I mean, presuming they, they have, haven't furloughed all their stuff, they can get it moving pretty quickly now. Could they? Yeah, it's never, it's never too late. Like, get on, you know, get on, start doing stuff. It's, um, you know, it's, it's time to work this stuff out. Um, and, um, you know, you're not, your staff, your community and events team aren't as busy right now. <laughs> um, and this is what they should be focused on. Um, but like I said, I think the, the problem is that a lot of, charities will do virtual events and they won't quite do it in the right way and then they'll say that virtual events didn't work and so there will be a lot of disillusionment coming out of this there'll be two camps there'll be the majority of dis disillusionment that it doesn't really work and then there will be the few real superstars who made it work and did the right thing and that's the, that's been the case with digital for the past you know decade and a half that i've been working in it like, oh, digital doesn't work, or we can't afford to, you know, da, 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 you know all these kind of excuses from the, the mainstream, and then some organizations who crack it, who just go really far. We made this whole case around, like, how to do virtual events, our case for, like, you know, using, to be honest, two decades worth of experience. I really, like, painted, like, the deep thinking of why and how you need to use, do virtual events right now. Yeah. If you want to grab that ebook, it's at, at givepanel.com, and that's free, and it's just, we just want to get that into the hands of many, of so many people because we see a, just a lot of confusion out there about how to do it and, and the thinking behind it. So I sat down with um, uh, a friend of ours called Adrian uh, O'Flynn, who's a master at doing these. He's, he's helped a lot of organizations. And so we sat down together and we wrote a kind of, you know, 10 page ebook about this. And 
And so, yeah, I just encourage people to, you know, we spent the time doing it. It'd be great if some people got hold of it. Um, so we've had about a thousand nonprofits read that right now. So we're trying to get the word out, you know, that, that this is an opportunity if you do it right, but you can so easily do it, do it wrong and get it wrong. And so we'd love to, uh, yeah, love to promote that really. Brilliant. And it sounds like now's the time to try it. So, uh, that's yeah, the other thing is because Facebook have made it super easy. There's no like website project you have to do for three months and spend lots of money. This is so easy to get into. Um, you know, you can launch it in, in, in a week, a couple of weeks if you, you know, because there's no, none of that. 10 years ago, we'd have to build it all from scratch and now we don't. And that's amazing. You know, Facebook have done us really uh, a real favor there. Fantastic. Nick Byrne, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats again. Thanks so much for having me on. So we're delighted to welcome a friend of the show, Giles Pegg from CBE, back to Charity Chat. Hello, Giles. Thanks for joining us. Again. Hello, Hello, Sam. Delighted to be here. So I understand you're in Poland. Yes, right? I'm in Poland. I'm in southwest Poland. Uh, we've got nice views of the mountains. Sadly, we can't go up into the mountains because of the uh, regulations here. But uh, yes, we're in Poland. It's the wonders of technology that we're able to see each other and talk to each other um, via Zoom. Other platforms are available. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us again. It's, it's a, um, I mean, it's, it's becoming a cliche now saying this, but it is such an unprecedented time. Um, this is the reason the charity channel is trying to do a weekly episode now because so much is changing and charities are really suffering. And, and it seems that all the, everything I see in, uh, in the, uh, the media, in the um, charity sector media, it is, is looking really, really bleak for charities right now. But is there another side of this too, do you think? But hang on a moment, Sam, because um, I think your first point about, about what you're seeing in the sector press, etc., about the negativity. Uh, I have a real problem with that. Um, I, I, can I just give you four very quick examples? Please. Uh, I mean, the first is um, two of the sector bodies that I really respect and people that I really respect. Um, so the first one has put out a, a statement. Charities across the country are facing imminent collapse as fundraising income dries up, charity leaders warn today. So that, you know, all doom and gloom. And another one, um, I'm hearing from charities whose income has disappeared overnight. Um, and then one that's been getting a lot of publicity recently is um, uh, some rapid data, tracking data, for people cancelling their regular giving. And it basically says, um, increase in cancellations of regular direct debits rising from 2.16% in February to 3.09% in March. Now that seems huge, you know, 2.16 to 3.09, but they've got a little chart and they've talked about the change from February to March. What they haven't talked about is the change from January to February. And in January, it was at 3.99%. It then dropped to 2.5% and has now gone back up again. So there is no way that a statistician would um, deduce from that that cancellations had, had, had gone down that dramatically. Mm. Um, and of course, people are cancelling their direct debits, but they're also increasing them and putting new ones, and that's not being talked about. And finally, there was just a piece of research that was done recently, and it gave the research, uh, people being asked the questions, four opportunities. 
new people becoming donors, people intending to stop their support, those people who intend to reduce their support, and those not intending to change their support. Now, they were the four options that people were giving, but there was no option of people who were intending to increase their support. So all the focus is on the negative, none of it is on the positive. And, and what impact would that have on, say, trustees thinking about the future of their charity? Presumably, this, this uh, kind of focus on, on the challenges and the bleak um, kindness of, of, of the situation for charities, that's going to have a potentially a, a kind of a slippery slope then, isn't it? Or a um, self-fulfilling well, property? It, it, it is, because if, um, if the mood out there is um, that all is doom and gloom, then I think if I were a trustee, I'd be talking about cutting the fundraising budget, saving money, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, um, we'll come on to later, I've got examples of where trustees have increased the fundraising budget and got extraordinary results. So I think this consequence of, of this doom and gloom is sending a, a very clear signal of, of, of almost a panic. Um, it, it becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and with, uh, I suppose, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to see in the news that people are struggling and, I mean, people are dying. It's, it's a really um, serious situation. But then also, I guess, I, and I don't know whether it's, um, I think, I think there's, a, there's a great deal of goodwill. And I suppose a lot of people see that as well with the, the clap for carers. And there seems to be um, an increase in giving to frontline causes uh, dealing with COVID-19. Um, so there seems to be an enormous amount of goodwill as well. Is that what charity should really be, should be tapping into and talking about more, do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, um, Beth Kantner observed that compassion is spreading as fast as the virus. Um, and we see in our communities, you probably don't see it over in Poland, but uh, last night, uh, everyone in the street was out clapping the NHS. Um, we're all looking out for the little old lady at the end of our road. So there's a real spirit of compassion and altruism out there. Um, and I believe that when philanthropic muscles are stretched, as they are now, they become stronger. And so we must ask ourselves, how can we harness that philanthropic muscle um, to help our supporters? Because I believe that people not only want to do good in their community, they also want to do good more widely in, in the sector with the charities that they support. And in terms of, we've talked about trustees and, and the views that they will be taking at this stage. And obviously it's, it's on them to make decisions to direct the charities through difficult times like this. But is it that they should be taking a longer view and seeing uh, potentially um, there might well be a drop in income for charities now in some cases, in other cases maybe not. Um, but it's more about the, the need to engage with their supporters through this difficult time, because those supporters, um, it's, it's a two-way relationship, isn't it? How it should be, shouldn't it, between supporters and charities? Should the charities be kind of looking out for their supporters as much as the supporters are looking out for their charity? I, I want to give a fairly robust answer to that question, but, but I must preface it with um, four caveats. I mean, the fact is that, as you've said, some fundraising will be lost, uh, and we mustn't underestimate that. Um, so much fundraising depends on people being able to get out of their homes. Uh, they can't. Um, 
that's never happened before. So nothing I'm going to say now is a, a get out of jail free card. Um, fates, jumble sales, all those kind of things, bucket collections, they're all going to go out of the window. The second it is, and we'll come back to this later, we must be very careful in our use of words with our supporters. Um, a huge number of our supporters will be financially affected, um, and we must acknowledge that. However, a huge number of our supporters will not be adversely financially affected. The third thing is that different charities need to interpret what I say today in, in a different way according to what is right for them and their supporters. And just finally, I, I think the small charities have very particular cha challenges which are not easy. Um, I know that some are in fear of going bust uh, and that's all for, uh, and I want to come back to that. So they would be my four caveats. But then I would go on to say, uh, a lot of people say the London Marathon is cancelled, therefore we've lost huge amounts of money. Now, it seems to me that many fundraisers are still thinking about fundraisers, fundraising as an activity, not about inspiring supporters and giving them a good experience. So if I were um, an intended participant on the London Marathon, I would go back to my sponsors. I think charities who got participants should go back to their participants. They should ask their sponsors um, on the phone or by email, of course, not house to house, um, but ask them, you know, um, you were going to sponsor me for the London Marathon. The London Marathon has been cancelled. The charity still desperately needs the money. Will you be prepared to continue the sponsorship? Now, I don't think that any sponsor would actually say, oh, no, you haven't been to the marathon, therefore I won't give the sponsorship to your charity. I simply don't believe it. And furthermore, I think that if the intended participant said, and will you give a little bit more because of this crisis, I think most of them would give more. So the, the cancellation of the London Marathon, and I realise it's going to be controversial, shouldn't be raising less money, it should be raising more money. Um, and the same with ticket sale events. If, if you've got um, um, theatre production or whatever and people have bought tickets for it, uh, if you go back to um, the ticket buyers and say the event's been cancelled, the charity still desperately needs the money, will you, you know, not take your money back but allow the money to go to the charity? Um, the Royal Opera House, you, know, you cannot imagine a charity less connected with COVID-19 than the Royal Opera House. But the Royal Opera House went back to its, um, its ticket holders and said, you know, we need the money, we need to pay our staff, we need to keep going. And their support, their, their, their ticket holders did give the money. Um, and they talked to a trust that normally gave 200,000 a year and they gave an extra 300,000. And that's the Royal Opera House, which is way removed from COVID-19. So I don't think we should be losing huge amounts uh, of money from events which are cancelled. It seems to me there's some muddle thinking out there. In terms of the, uh, so, I mean, these, there, there are so many examples of, of these things working. And as you say, there seems to be an awful lot of, of compassion. Uh, and, and potentially we might see an increase in, in philanthropic um giving and, and volunteering and things like that especially as more people get furloughed though of course the caveat to that is that people can't be around each other at the moment do you think that we're going to see um a, a potentially a drop in income in the short term but that will 
increase over the longer term. I know they're talking about recession um, following this crisis, and we're not quite sure how long the social isolation things is going to be going on for. Do you think that will? Do you have a? I, I, that that is outside of my sphere of um, competence. I I think people are talking about you know the exit strategy and how long it's going to last. We haven't got a clue how long it's going to last. Mm. Um, some reports say you know we're, we're plateauing. Um, other reports say it could be six months or a year uh, of lockdown. Um, different charities, so, so I wouldn't predict anything about when this is going to end. Um, different charities who have different income streams are going to be in different situations. They're going to have different levels of reserves. Um, so again, I wouldn't try to predict what's going to happen. Um, the one thing I'm certain of is that some income is going to be lost. And I, I don't want to underestimate that. But what I want to talk about is, is the income that can be gained, uh, the opportunities there are. Is, is there, I mean, one of the challenges that I face in my role is obviously big in Poland is a bit of a challenge, um, but everyone's in a similar situation that they can't meet face to face now. And obviously we're um, speaking online and, and that's possible. You know, I've, I've come from a lot of organizations where the, the ethos I think has been strong on meeting people and um, getting face to face with people to talk to them about the charity's work and about developing the relationship with that person to support the charity's work. Obviously we've lost that now and there are technologies that people are using, people are having Zoom meetings and all these other things. Um, do you think that's, that's going to play a big part in how we as kind of charities develop relationships with their supporters over the next few months um, yes, absolutely. yes absolutely are, are you talking about major givers or mass I individual suppose, givers? i suppose uh, yeah different different uh, groups and and major well, givers probably yeah well can we talk about both Please. um because major givers it, it seems to me that major donor fundraisers are stuck at home they've got no meetings to go to no meetings on health and safety and risk and training calls etc they're just stuck, stuck at home so I don't see any reason why they can't be contacting their major donors uh, by phone, by Zoom if appropriate, and having conversations with their supporters, uh, lasting as long as the supporter wants, um, building the relationship with the supporter, telling the supporter how much their support in the past has been appreciated, telling the supporter what impact COVID-19 is having on the charity. Um, recognizing their own situation, but then actually ask them, would you be prepared to give? Um, and I actually believe that we could strengthen the relationship with our supporters at this time because we can spend more time having face-to-face -face conversations with them. So major donor fundraiser that may have had two meetings in a day with major donors can probably have 10 meetings a day on the phone or by Zoom or whatever. So. I don't think major donor fundraising should be dramatically uh, impacted. Um, and I've, I've, I've got examples of where, of where people have dramatically increased their, their major giving. Um, double what they would normally have given, 10 times what they would normally have given. And I know from my own experience that a donor that gives 10 times what they would normally give to a charity that's badly affected by COVID-19 
will have an unimaginably better experience um, as a result of having done that. They will feel that they have played a, a major part in this COVID-19 uh, crisis and they'll feel great about it and you'll strengthen the relationship for when we come out of uh, the crisis. individual givers um, sure. because again I, I think there are huge opportunities um, but I come back to the careful wording I, I think that charities should they should write to their individual givers but it should be outside in not inside out so the first thing you should be saying in a letter to individual, individual givers is you know we really appreciate your support we know that you're suffering um, at this difficult time um, we hope you're coping not too badly. Um, if you are struggling financially, then please um, tell us and we'll give you a payment holiday on your direct debit or you can cancel your direct debit. You know, they've been there for you, so, so be there for them. To tell them that you're there for them. And that way, you, you deal with the people who are financially adversely affected. So you can then put those to one side and focus on the people who can give more. Now, again, this might be controversial, but a lot of the people who are not financially adversely affected are actually better off. Uh, no theater, uh, no restaurants, no holidays. They've actually got more money to give. Um, and therefore, whereas I would normally, when approaching donors, when writing donors say, would you consider giving or might you, um, have, you know, give them the opportunity to give, um, or all sorts of words. I think we should now be asking very powerfully, very strongly, very directly, we need money from you now because we are in such awful difficulties. And I believe that if you do that sensitively, you will get a huge return. Let me give you an example. Um, I don't know, do you know Damien O'Brien in Ireland? I don't know. Okay, well, so he, he's a very well-known fundraiser. And he got one of his clients to write a, a, a balance letter. Um, it, it, again, it gave people the opportunity to reduce their direct debit um, or cancel it. And it also gave them the opportunity in a quite neutral way, much more neutral than I would have done, to increase uh, their direct debit. And would you like to guess what the ratio was of people who cancelled versus people who upgraded? Balance out? No, no, but, but more people upgraded. Did they? Ha, ha. What would be the maximum ratio you would think of people who upgrade rather than downgrade? Oh, blind. I don't know. 20%? 100, 100 to 1. Oh, wow. That's two zeros. I had, I had to check the number of zeros. A hundred people upgraded their it regular gift uh, compared with those who downgraded it. Then another example, a, a client of mine was going to do a mailing, one of their standard mailings, and I persuaded them at very short notice to change it. So they had to do a really rough and ready uh, email. Um, it was freedom from torture. Um, it dealt with it deals with survivors of torture. And 
they changed it to a letter that actually talked about the impact COVID-19 was having on survivors of torture and the people in freedom from torture who were dealing with them. And as you can imagine, it, it, it was very powerful because they're very strong connections. They got a better return in the first day of the response to that mailing than they would have expected in six weeks. Um, and then the RNLI, um, again, a charity you wouldn't normally associate with COVID-19. But Jane George uh, sent out her spring appeal and got five times what she normally gets. So we're not talking about marginal increases. We're talking about huge increases mm. in people being prepared to give if they're asked. Yeah. And that's the hard thing. I, I mean, as you said earlier, you know, I suppose that there must be teams of people out there who are being furloughed. And it, it strikes me that uh, those charities are going to suffer twice because they're potentially suffering now because they're, they're then subsequently having to furlough staff. Um, but then they'll suffer longer term because they won't have those staff in place to really build those strong relationships with their supporters now and potentially raise funds now. In my caveat, I said that different charities will need to interpret what I'm saying in different ways. I'm not saying this is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Some charities are going to suffer. Some charities are going to go under. I'm just trying to take the positive approach of engaging your supporters because I think as fundraisers, we have a duty to engage our supporters. I've heard of some fundraisers who are protecting their supporters by not writing to them. And I think that is ethically and morally wrong. I think we have a duty to engage our supporters and we have no right to make decisions on their behalf as to whether or not they will support. We must engage with them. We must ask them, particularly if our charities are going, going bust. If, 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 if my favourite small charity um, that I support went bust and hadn't given me the opportunity to help stop it, I would be livid and, I, and I'd want answers from the trustees. Why didn't you let me be involved? Um, so I, I think we have to change a lot of fundraisers' mindsets. Uh, the game has changed, the rules have changed, donors know that engage with your donors. Let them be part of the solution to the enormous problems they face, you face. So, Giles, you, you spoke earlier about um, charities having to be really careful about how they speak to their supporters. What kind of wording should charities be, should, uh, should charities be thinking of using? And that's a very interesting question, because when I did um, a webinar recently, I was talking about careful choice of words, and someone wrote back and said, what, what do you actually mean by that? Um, and so I thought for them, and I thought, okay, um, so the one thing you shouldn't do is a standard direct mail piece with five asks on the front page. That, that, that would be catastrophic. But imagine that today uh, you've lost your job, you're being threatened with eviction and are struggling very hard even to feed your four children. Uh, one of those children has the virus and is quarantined. So all the sleeping arrangements have become topsy-turvy. You also need greatly heightened sanitation, requiring more disinfectant and cleaning materials which you can't afford. And you lie awake at night, sleepless. What will become of you? 
And then you have an aunt who loves you dearly, but hasn't a clue about your plight. And of course, she's struggling with the crisis, as we all are. She depends on deliveries uh, for her food. If the delivery is delayed, she goes without a meal and is hungry. But she's not short of money. Now, how would you communicate with her in those circumstances? What would be the careful choice of words that you would use? And I would suggest that if you think about that, those are the sort of words you should use when writing to your supporters. Write them like a, like, like a, um, a friendly aunt who loves you dearly, because that's what your supporters are. Absolutely, that's a great way of looking at that, I think. And, uh, and I suppose then, does that, I, I saw an, a trust application um, that my team and I were writing, and it was really heartfelt. It was, it was you know, I think, you know, hopefully we, we write good trust applications, but it was a letter that really felt like a, quite a personal letter from one person to another person. And I know that that's something we've tried to do in the past, and, and other places I've been, that's, that's, you know, but it's quite rare in the end, you, and maybe that's part of working more quickly um, and, and more urgently. And maybe that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a silver lining of, of having to work in a, in a much uh, quicker and um, kind of looser way, that you then get a bit more authenticity to how we, how we communicate. I think that, that seems the case. And, and we all talk about that all the time. Uh, but we don't necessarily do it. Mm. But, but, but the world is different now. Um, the world has never been like this in our lifetimes or our supporters' lifetimes. So if there was ever a reason, ever a time to do that careful choice of words, to write to the donor carefully and, and ask them to become part of the solution. And I would use, personally, I would use words that would expect the person to respond. They're your supporters, they like you, that's why uh, they give you money. Tell them your plight, tell them how difficult it is, and say, please help us, please. And when you say your supporters, I mean, if, if I've got a database of 100,000 people, should I be sending mailing after mailing to those people now and really explaining my plight? Is that what we mean by supporters? No, um, I think we need to be very careful um, about what we mean by supporters. If you've got a database of 100,000 people, I think you would need to ask yourself how many of those people, which of those people would think of themselves as supporters? And they're the ones you should approach. But I suspect a lot of people on your 100,000 database wouldn't really think of themselves as supporters. They may have given once four years ago, or they may have done something, but they wouldn't consider themselves as supporters. And, and I don't believe you should be writing to them. Because if every charity writes to every name on their database, so people are going to be inundated and it will then be counterproductive. I think if every charity wrote to its real supporters, they would respond. But take care, don't, don't overkill. And don't write letter after letter after letter. Um, write one really powerful letter, see what response you get back, and then base your next uh, mailing on that. But if, if you write to all your supporters now, if you've got a really good agency, it's probably going to take at least two to three weeks before you get the letter out. Um, you're then going to need to see the response coming back. That's another two to three weeks. 
So you're talking six weeks away at least, at least before you see the response to that mailing. So see what the response to the mailing is, see how the world has changed in that time, and then think about another communication that recognizes the new world and recognizes how people have responded to your first appeal. But don't plan tomorrow a series of, what, what do you call it, you know, appeal after appeal after appeal. That, that's not the way to approach it. One appeal at a time. And is, you know, we're, we're talking now and, and people will be listening to this, well, for weeks, probably for years, you know, they'll be going back and listening to this. And, and who knows what the, the world will be like when they're listening. But for, for people listening in kind of April 2020 or even May 2020, Will they, be, will they have missed out on that opportunity to build those strong relationships? People are philanthropic. They're going to go on being philanthropic. They're going to go on being altruistic. Um, if this goes on for six months, um, they will continue to be philanthropic. So don't just write them once and then forget about them. See how the world has changed um, in two months' time. And you might be sending them a different message. You would be sending them a different message. Because... If you just think how much the world has changed um, in the last two months, and you, know, you, you talked about your listeners um, listening to this in some time. So just to be clear, it's the 10th of April when we're talking, yeah. 10th of April, 2020. Um, in, in two months time, in June, 2020, the world will be different, but people will still have that altruism. They'll still have that philanthropic muscle. They're still available to be engaged. There's no time limit on that. And Giles, do, do you care to speculate how charities might evolve through this crisis and, and what we might see charities look like? I think I've already answered that question, which is basically, I'm talking about generalities, about specifically how you might engage your supporters, um, specifically how you might lose, sorry, avoid losing money from events. But every charity is different. And what I've just said as I've said, it is not going to protect every charity. It needs to be interpreted. But the one thing I would urge all supporters to do is to stop thinking about activities and start thinking about inspiring your supporters. And I think if every charity did that, they would see a difference. And I can't predict what that difference will be. Giles Pegram, CBE, thank you for contributing again to Charity Chat. It's, it's my great pleasure, and I hope I haven't irritated too many charities by saying oh he's talking rubbish that doesn't apply to us um it does apply um believe me i've, I've been around a long time we really appreciate it thanks ever so much all the best now. Big thank you there to Nick Byrne and Giles Pegram CBE. Nick's enthusiasm for doing virtual events and engaging your supporters through Facebook is inspiring. Giles is, of course, a legendary fundraiser with incredible fundraising expertise and experience, having among his qualifications 30 years as appeals director at the NSPCC, where the groundbreaking full-stop appeal raised over £250 million. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Nick and Giles, both fairly optimistic, uh, given the challenges we're facing, and that gave me pause. We find ourselves in such a difficult time at the moment, and certainly 
a lot of charities are struggling. Giles recognised that whatever advice charities take, some will sadly go under, and the staff and the people that need them most, their beneficiaries, are likely to suffer, at least in the short term. But for those that are able to continue over the coming weeks and months, this might be the best time to engage your supporters in this time of mutual challenge. Giles spoke about the philanthropic muscle and how this is a time to build that muscle so that in the future, compassion, philanthropy can be called upon again to help make the world better, which I think is something that we all want. Your call to action might be successful for you and for your beneficiaries, but the most vital call to action will give your supporter a wonderful experience of solidarity, camaraderie, something to do while they sit at home in isolation, maybe a feeling of being useful, perhaps even being vital. These are strong forces for good, and I hope that you can employ them respectfully and uh, responsibly in order to do the great work that you and the charities you support do to make life better for somebody else. A big thank you, dear listener, for all that you do to make life better. Stay safe and well, and thank you for listening. If you would like to suggest a contributor to join us uh, for an episode on the show, or if you would indeed like to become a, a member of our Volunteers Collective, please do get in touch through our new email address, charitychatpodcast at gmail.com. It's just left for me to thank our sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for the beautiful website design. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. RRER Photography for the lovely pro bono images on our website. And of course, Forest of Fools, who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. That's it from me. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.